If you would, open your Bible to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4, that should be on page 722 if you're using the Pew Bibles this morning. Daniel chapter 4. This is a very interesting chapter when we consider it in its context. Apparently Siri thinks I'm talking to her. Um, But uh, we will read through the whole chapter, even though it's long, because the way this story unfolds, it's important to hear it all. So, Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. Its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the wild animals took shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From every creature was fed. In the vision I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches." But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal, till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers, the holy ones declare the verdict, so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign." over all nations on earth, and gives them to anyone he wishes, and sets over them the lowliest of peoples. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals, and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven, saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, 
Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord, the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like an ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign over all kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later. As the king was walking on his roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this great Babylon I have built as a royal residence by my mighty power and the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from peoples and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. My sanity was restored when I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Rita paused for a moment, taking in the scene. There's something so familiar about all this, she said. Do you ever have deja vu? Phil responded, didn't you just ask me that? If you're familiar with Groundhog Day, that should be a familiar scene. Phil had been reliving the same day in an endless pattern. He'd taken Rita out on the same day a myriad of times. It was quite literally deja vu, something already seen. They both had already seen that scenario before, and Phil was desperately trying to learn from each pass of the deja vu how he can try and win Rita's affections. But the night always ended the same way, with her giving a good stiff slap across the face. The irony, the lesson he really needed to learn from his manufacturing deja vu was the one he failed to learn, because he was manufacturing deja vu. For the first readers, this story was meant to be a slap in the face, a deja vu. This had happened already. We're going to come back to that later in the sermon, but hold on to that for now. The title of the sermon is The Felling of Pride, as flows from the central lesson of this chapter. We see it clearly summed up in the last verse, God is able to humble those who walk in pride. So we'll walk through this sermon with the three points, the vision, the interpretation, and the fulfillment First, the vision. Did you notice how this chapter was written by Nebuchadnezzar? There's a chapter in your Bible written by a pagan king 
who ripped God's people out of their homeland and took them captive. Did you know that? Because that's what this is. The pagan king who conquered Judah and Jerusalem is writing part of your Bible, friends. It's a fascinating situation to consider, is it not? You see, if this chapter records Neb's genuine conversion, as I tend to think it does, then this is one more wonderful example of God's salvific grace toward a pagan king. Uh, See, assuming this chapter is that, then what we're finding here is that God is able to call and save a pagan king and use him to write scripture. He, He didn't have any seminary. He didn't have any training. He didn't even have three years with Jesus. God is able to take a pagan king, call him, save him, and write scripture. So it's probably worth a moment to consider what it is that Christians believe and have confessed down through the years about this book we call the Bible. Well, the confession of faith that this church was founded with, the 1853 New Hampshire Confession, summarizes the doctrine of Scripture beautifully. It says this, We believe that the Holy Bible was written by men divinely inspired and is a perfect treasure of heavenly instruction, that it has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter, that it reveals the principles by which God will judge us and therefore is and shall remain till the end of the world the true center of Christian union, the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and opinions should be tried. Scripture, it says, was written by men divinely inspired. God is able to write exactly what he wants, even through the human instruments who write what they want according to their own style. That's what we see here. And in this case, God chose to speak through a Babylonian king he had just saved, or at least seemed to have. It is a picture of God's absolute sovereignty. As with Abram years before, who was called out of that very similar area while he was worshiping the moon gods, so too God can call King Neb and save him and use him to write scripture. You see, friends, God doesn't need your permission to call you. God is the sovereign potter. He has the right to use the clay. Uh, Having taught Neb a lesson, God calls him to write this letter to the nations and peoples of every language on the earth. After calling and changing him, Neb says it was his pleasure to tell the wonders of God that God had performed for him. Now, don't get me wrong. Neb absolutely desired to write this letter. He longed to it, bubbled over from it. You can hear it in the way that he speaks of God. But God called him. And Neb responded to that call. Uh, Here, this pagan king offers boundless declaration of God's absolute sovereignty. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Did you catch it at both the beginning and the end of the chapter? He repeats that line at the end, and then he goes on to say, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, though Neb declares these wonderful truths with bold clarity. In fact, this is one of the central problems that all humans have, is that we reject or downplay God's sovereignty, his sovereign authority. Ever since the Garden of of Eden, people have been questioning if God's word really says. I mean, that's essentially what was happening with the serpent, was it not? The serpent said, well, did God really say you were going to die? There's another way of phrasing that same question is, 
God really can't kill you for disobeying his rules, can he? God can't. But that's not what Neb says. Neb says this God is the God who all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. You see, the tendency for humans to assert the things that God cannot do flows from that slithering snake whispering in the garden who wants to minimize God. Oh, the book of Daniel has been hammering this point home for us again and again, week after week. God does as he pleases. Nothing and no one hold back his hand and his plan. Those who question him will end up like Job, standing before him one day with mouth covered, saying, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me that I did not understand. See, if God wants to call Neb and convert him and have him write down a chapter of the Bible, God doesn't need his permission. God doesn't need anyone's permission to act. Oh, make no mistake, those whom God calls will repent and believe. But remember what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.25, that God is also the one who grants repentance. Even our repentance, friends, is a gift from God. So as I mentioned, Abram's being called out of paganism, and here Neb's being called and converted. Another example we could go to is the Apostle Paul in Acts 9. Paul was still breathing murderous threats against the church, was he not? On his way to persecute God's people, and Jesus said, mine. He claims him. Jesus didn't pause Paul and Silas and be like, Paul, would it be okay with you if I call you? I mean, I just want to get your thoughts on this. That's not how sovereignty works. Jesus says, you are mine, and he claimed him. More than that, after claiming him, he says, go sit down for a couple days, and I'm going to send somebody to you. And the man he sends to him, named Ananias, is scared to death because he knows that Paul's been persecuting the church. And God says to Ananias, not merely have I called him to be my instrument to preach to the Gentiles, but also that he might see how much he will suffer for my name. The peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. God doesn't need our permission to call us, to save us, to send us on mission, even if that means that our calling and being saved might include suffering for the gospel. So friend, maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. I hope you hear my prayer for you is that God will call you and claim you for himself. My prayer for you is that God will grant you repentance and that you will turn and cast yourself on the mercy of God and you will do so before he does to you what he did to King Neb. Because being turned into a beast does not seem like a wonderful prospect. Well, Neb has set the stage by showing us this whole chapter bends around the absolute unquestioned sovereignty of God. And it turns on one more dream. Unlike chapter 2, he does not uh, force the, the magicians to jump through the hoops. He needs an answer. And so he just tells them flat out what this dream is about. It's about a tree whose branches extend to heaven, who can be seen from the distance of the earth. Obviously, there's some hyperbole going on here. Uh, the world tree, it provides shelter, shade, sustenance for all life on the earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit. Well, Neb saw a messenger. Uh, some translations might say watcher, just a fancy way of saying angel. It connects with the apocalyptic literature that is bound up with some of Daniel. Well, anyway, this angel comes down from heaven and it calls out to strip the tree of its, of its branches, scatter its fruit, and lay it down, but to leave the stump in the field banded up. Then the language switched. Did you catch it? It switched from speaking about a tree to a hymn. So clearly talking about a man. This man is in view, and his mind will be changed to that from a man to that of a beast for seven times. 
And we learn that this messenger, again, is declaring the sovereign decree of God in heaven. So Neb looks to Daniel for the interpretation, which will bring us to our next point, the interpretation. Let's look at verses 19 through 27 again. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all nations on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be that then your prosperity will continue. Did you catch the relationship that Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel have? Daniel's troubled by the dream, and so Neb comforts him. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who ripped him from his home, from his land, destroyed everything that he'd known. And we don't know exactly how long it is into their relationship this is taking place, but Nebuchadnezzar comforts him. Which means that Daniel hasn't been a jerk to him. It means that Daniel has done precisely what chapter 1 said, that he is to live and serve in such a way as to seek the peace and prosperity of the city. He's been thriving under the pagans. Because he obeyed God's call, he has an incredible relationship with King Neb. Paul writes the same thing of how Christians are to engage with the world around us in Romans 12, 17 through 21. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. But be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, repay says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice the attitude that Christians are to have with non-Christians. We're to be those who leave room, who seek to repay evil with kindness. Sadly, this is an area where Christians have often failed. Unlike Daniel, we have often set ourselves apart. Christians have far too often been those identified with judgmentalism. Far too often are those who speak and treat those outside of the church as pariahs, as those we've got to stay away from. During the years that I worked bivocationally, so I was making a living by working in the banking world, but I was helping to plant a church, uh, I found that this was often the case. Uh, because of websites like LinkedIn, I'd get a job, and, 
and someone would go on my profile and find out, this guy's been a pastor before, I don't know about this. And one guy in particular, he worked for me for the first six months or so that I worked with this guy, he kept a particular tattoo he had covered because uh, he was nervous that I'd see it. And uh, basically the tattoo, it showed, uh, I think it was the word like coexist, but it, it, it substituted symbols for some of the letters. So it had the star of David and then it had the cross and then it had the crescent moon and star of, of Islam all woven into this coexisting. And he didn't want me to see it because he figured as his boss that you know, maybe I wouldn't treat him fair or, or maybe I'd be rude or something. What was fascinating though was give him more time, build a relationship with him, start to talk to him. We had wonderful conversations. I, I, I got to say, oh, I don't believe that. I don't even know any Christians who believe that. I was like, well, I, I read it in a book once or saw it in a movie. I'm like, well, that might be the problem. You're reading the wrong book. Uh, that, that's not the way that's supposed to work. I found the workplace to oftentimes be uh, one of those spaces where the initial reaction when someone would find out you're a Christian was <gasps> probably because of someone else that they've met before or a book or a movie they read. But oftentimes that was one of the greatest places to have conversations and build relationships. And I remember this man and I were getting very close to the point when he finally took another job. He, he came to me, he was leaving the company, he said, can you give me some career advice? What do I look for this for? It was just a wonderful way to build relationships and engage with others. But you had to deconstruct this, this whole impression, right? Well, see, friends, it's so important for us that we spend the time to establish relationships. We just don't live in a world that assumes Christians are nice people. And so that means we have to do a little bit of work. That's probably what Daniel had to do here. He probably had to spend time with Neb and, and build this relationship. So much so that Daniel goes to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, the sovereign. Remember the one who likes to kill people and cut them up into pieces and burn their houses down? And he goes to him and he says, Neb, you have to repent. Oh, I'm pleading with you. I wish this dream was for your enemies. Oh, Neb, please, please repent. Do justice. Seek to make right the oppression. Look at that relationship he has. Pleading with a pagan king. Uh, it's a wonderful example for us. I wonder if any of you have ever been out street preaching before or known people who've done it. It can be done well, but the difficulty is we live in a world that is so post-Christian that the problem is, is most people don't have the categories they need to understand the gospel. You see, the gospel is that we are so sinful and broken. We have so cast off God's rule in our life that we had to have God the Son become incarnate and live and die in our place. But if you don't have a category for sin, you don't understand that, then the gospel is almost meaningless. It just doesn't make sense. Uh, I don't know how many of you know many Portlanders, but about five years ago, I started going to this gal uh, who cuts my hair. And the way I found out about her was a member of the church I was serving, worked with her, and she said, you should come get your, your hair cut from this gal that I work with. Man, she doesn't know anything about Jesus. And I'm praying for her and trying to tell her about Jesus, but she's clueless. Maybe you could help. I was like, sure. So I've been going to get my hair cut from her ever since, about five years now. When I first met her, she didn't know the Bible had two testaments. She didn't know who Paul was, Peter, John, no clue. She heard of Jesus because of the whole Christmas thing, and then she went to one day of a VBS once when she was a kid. Try to say to her that you're wicked and you need the grace of God. You might as well be speaking another language. It doesn't mean anything. So see, that's the world we live in. Well, the average Portlander, they just don't have the categories. So the street preaching, while it has its places, that's not the world we live in anymore. 
we live in the world that we're going to have to spend time with people. Uh, enough time to where they stop hiding their tattoos from you. Uh, otherwise, they're never going to be able to hear us when we speak because they don't have the category for sin. Again, we don't know how long it was that Daniel was with King Nebuchadnezzar at this point, but we know he had enough of a relationship to speak bold truth to him. And so members of Bethany, our call to do evangelism in this post-Christian world, it's going to take an investment of time. Does your calendar reflect the type of time that we should invest in evangelism? Is there anything blocked out on your calendar? Get to know secular neighbor who doesn't know there's two testaments. Maybe that's a little too specific, but you understand what I'm saying. Does your calendar, do you actually block out part of your schedule to be a Christian in Portland, in this world, in Bethany? Friends, as with our money, if we don't plan our time, it will disappear. We're going to have to be that type of people who plan who put time in, I'm going to go to this store and meet these people. Thriving among the pagans does not mean we have the option of hiding out in holy huddles. It means we have to use our day planners to engage with the community around us. Uh, Recently, Jeff presented to the elders the initial plan to launch community groups in the fall. And two of the aims for those groups internally, for our members, is to help us build relationships, to grow in the one another's that Bud and Ron have done such a great job unpacking for us in the Sunday school class recently. Another element of it for Christians is, is for us to be able to see when new people come, here's how you engage with others. Here's a community group in the area where you live so you can go and engage with other Christians and walk together because the Christian life is a one another walk. But a third issue is that evangelistic area. It is to engage those neighbors where that group meets uh, to make sure that we don't become just another little huddle that hangs out in a particular neighborhood and it's like, oh, it's Tuesday night. That's where the weirdos get together. No, it's, it's to engage with the world and not engage them with the street preaching that says, turn or burn, but to engage them with, hey, would you like to come? I have some friends coming over. We're going to eat some hamburgers or whatever. Uh, I'm so grateful for the Coladas and their diligence of doing a game night and inviting their neighbors. That is a wonderful example. Lord willing, the community groups will do something similar. And yes, there'll be an area where we get to feed and be fed and encouraged, but also an area where we get to reach out. Friends, the goal of a church is for the members of the church to be the outreach ministry of the church, to do that work of engaging our neighbors. Peter picks up on this as well. He says his charge is for Christians to live such godly lives among the pagans that they can see that there's something different about us. But that means we have to live among the pagans, like Daniel does here. Well, between Daniel wishing that this dream was for Neb's enemies and then his exhortation for Neb to repent, he gives us the interpretation that Neb is the great tree. His dominion extends to distant parts, and and all the nations are like the birds who are nesting in his branches. And he explains that the felling of the tree was a picture of God humbling him, dealing with his pride, and he'll be made like the beast. Now, it's funny, the commentators go all over the place trying to explain how it is, what is this, and there's all sorts of fancy little words and diagnoses for people who, like, actually think that they're cows, and they go and eat grass. I don't know that that's necessarily the point of what we're supposed to do here. That's a fascinating little, you know, psychological uh, journey to go on. Uh, But it says for seven times this is going to happen to Neb. Well, seven times. Some older translation said seven years. It just means seven appointed times, which is to say the amount of time God has appointed to bring Neb to repentance. That's the reason the stump is left in the ground, is that Neb will, in fact, repent. 
but he actually has to repent. And Daniel pleads with him to do so. So now we're to the point of the deja vu. Anybody getting the whispers of what this deja vu is? Why would the first readers have heard this story to this point and said, oh, that reminds me of something? Well, because the first readers knew their Bible, particularly the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah 6, the famous chapter, in the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple with glory, and the winged seraphs cried out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah crumbles, woe is me, I have seen the Lord. And so the angel takes the tongs and, and a burning coal and he purifies him. And God said, who will go for us? Who can we send? Now we oftentimes read that, here I am, Lord, send me. I think Isaiah was probably like, will I do? I don't think anybody stands in the presence of the one seated on the throne with a, yep, you can send me. Oh, Lord, will I do? Now, probably for most of us, that's kind of where our knowledge of that chapter ends, because that's a beautiful scene. And frankly, the rest of that chapter is really depressing. Uh, The rest of that chapter goes like this. He says, send me, Lord, will I do? Can you send me? And God says, yes, I will send you. Verse 9 through 10 of that chapter. And so God says, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their eyes blind, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah's call is to preach a message which hardens everybody in sin, which solidifies them in their denial of God. And as an obedient preacher, he says, okay, that's good. Well, how long am I going to preach that message, Lord? I mean, you're going to bring revival in the end, right? And God's response in verse 11, B through 13 is this. How long will you preach? Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes a people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains in the ground when it is felt. The holy seed is its stump. Now do you hear the deja vu? Israel. The Jews living under Nebuchadnezzar's rule are those who had been fulfilled in Isaiah 6, ripped out of their homeland, transported away, and God had raised it again in judgment. But it ended with the stump in the ground, with hope of restoration, because hope of restoration had been offered to King Neb. Now do you see the deja vu? The call to repentance to King Nebuchadnezzar would have made the first readers ripped out of their land, living under King Nebuchadnezzar, knowing three more kingdoms are to come, to ask the question, have we repented yet? Have we been humbled of our pride? Would their stump and holy seed be restored? That's the deja vu which is ringing in the minds of the first readers. Hearing of the great humbling, the question is, would they be humbled too? Well, that brings us to the last point, the fulfillment. Look at verses 28 through 37. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence? By my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. 
This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox, and seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from the people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. At the human level, Nebuchadnezzar had every reason to marvel at his kingdom. One of the commentators notes this, that even by today's standards and the remaining ruins of Babylon Babylon are magnificent. The Ishtar Gate was colossal, 47 feet high, 100 feet wide, and the walls were painted with blues and gold. Magnificent architecture was found everywhere. Another commentator expands the scene. When you'd walk through this massive gate that was on the north side, it went on to what was called Procession Street, 62 feet wide, 1,000 yards long, paved with imported stones. A bridge some 400 feet long spanned the Euphrates, connecting the east and west sectors of the city. Nebuchadnezzar enjoyed three palaces in his city that he had constructed, and uh, two of them, and he constructed the famous Hanging Gardens, he did that for his wife, Amethyst, or Amethyst, because she was from Media, which was in the mountains and beautiful hilly area, and so living in the flatlands of Babylon, he wanted to make her feel at home. Neb was an incredible man, and he had built an incredible Babylon. He was right to marvel at it, but doing so after God had warned him that he needed to be humbled was not so wise. So in the midst of gawking at the glories of his kingdom, he's interrupted by a heavenly voice. See, throughout these first chapters, Nebuchadnezzar has offered many decrees, but now it's God's turn to offer a decree that he be humbled, driven away to live as a beast. And who could ever love a beast? If you hear that movie quote, it's from the cartoon Beauty and the Beast. Sorry, I'm a girl dad here. But it just makes us ask the question, what a weird chapter. Like, why in the world does God turn him into a beast? Have you ever just paused and thought about that? It's just a strange thing for God to do. I mean, it's not like God is the fairy godmother in the, in the story, right? Who's just cranky and, well, you're being beastly. I'm going to turn you into a beast. Or is it? Well, the answer comes to us from Psalm 115, verses 1 through 8, which reads, Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. Because of your love and faithfulness. Why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. But their idols are silver and gold, made by human hands. They have mouths, but cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot 
uh, here, and noses but cannot smell. They have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. The psalmist gives us a principle for life we're seeing worked out in Nebuchadnezzar's story. We become like what we worship. Nebuchadnezzar worshipped created things, so God turned him into a creature. He worshipped the works of his hands, and so God created him, recreated him, maimed him, changed him into a beastly creature. It's a fascinating story. If you get overly worshipful of creation, you're going to have a problem. There's a fine line. The Psalms say that the heavens declare the glory of God. They're meant to redirect our praise back up to him. But if you become, and I love the outdoors, so I'm not being too snarky here. If you become too much of a tree hugger, be careful. You might get turned into a tree. Now, whatever we elevate to the place of worship, we're going to begin to resemble that. It's just the way that it works. So how does that work for Americans? Well, Americans, we tend to worship comfort, safety, security, right? I mean, the American dream, wasn't it? Three beds, two baths, 2.5 kids. Isn't that how it works? And then the dream is expanded. We want larger houses and larger lots, and we want more safety and security, more hobbies, more recreation. Comfort is a massive idol in our American culture, is it not? But here's the thing. What this leads to is that American Christians tend to view the church in very self-serving, consumeristic terms. The church becomes this thing which checks a bunch of boxes for us. So if it checks all these boxes, then that's, that's the church I go to. See, for the vast majority of human history, there was just no mobility to do that type of stuff. You went to whichever church was close by. At one level, we praise God that we have more mobility because there's a proliferation of buildings up all over this city and world which gather every Sunday and do a bunch of churchy things, but they don't actually resemble biblical churches in any meaningful sense of the word. Well, they're full of people and programs, but they're not doing what is biblically defined as a church. See, biblically, a rightly ordered church is this. It is the regular gathering together of baptized believers to worship God by sitting under his word and growing in our love and service for each other and witnessing to his work in our lives to the world around us. The key of that phrase is gathering, assembled. That's actually what the word means. It means the gathering, the assembling together. We gather to worship the one true God. This is an essential element for a biblically defined church. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says this. We are not to neglect gathering together. Immediately, the very next verse, he goes on to say, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. What are you saying? If gathering is essential and we just ignore it, we have a serious problem. Friends, there's no such thing as a member of a church on paper only. That's why the image of the body is used. If you take your hand and disconnect it, how long does it take before that hand is no longer a part of your body? Well, nowadays with technology, you can put it on ice for a little while. But it's going to die. It's going to wither. If we're not gathering in worship, as the Bible commands all God's people to do, then we're being shaped by something else. And for American Christians, that tends to be that we're shaped by our comforts and our preferences rather than God's word. If our engagement in the church is mainly something that flows from a level of comfort, 
then we're really worshiping our comfort more than we're worshiping the God of the Bible. And so like Neb, we will more and more become like what we worship. Unless, as the picture of Neb shows us, will we be more like him or more like Israel? Here's why I make that contrast. Because as I said, the image of the cut-down tree was meant to be deja vu, hearkening them back to the fact that Israel was a cut-down tree with a stump remaining in the ground. So the first readers were asking the question, would they repent? Would they be humbled? Well, when I opened the series, I mentioned how the book of Daniel finds itself in the last part of the Hebrew Bible. In the Hebrew Bible, there's the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings, and Daniel's in that part of the Bible. Our English Bibles end with the book of Malachi in what's called the post-exilic prophets. It's the prophets that prophesied after they were back in the land, they'd rebuilt the wall, they'd rebuilt the temple, so after you know, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And those are the last books in our, in our English Bible. But in the Hebrew Bible, the Bible ends with First and Second Chronicles. And Second Chronicles ends with Cyrus, the king who's going to take over here in the next chapter of Daniel, declaring, may the Lord be with you as you go up and rebuild the wall and the temple. Well, scholars have, have argued the reason why the Hebrew Bible ends that way, even though historically they had gone beyond that, the reason the Hebrew Bible ends with this call to go back up and retake the land and rebuild the temple is because even though Israel was back in the land, they were still spiritually in exile. That's also what Malachi gets at. Well, you're back, but you're giving me offerings with broken, sheep, broken legs, and you wouldn't give that offering to your governor. Why are you giving it to me? So, what that is to say is they didn't pay attention to the deja vu. Israel, like Neb, had been cut down, stump remaining in the ground. But unlike the pagan king, they didn't truly, lastingly repent. So Israel may have been back in the land, but what they really worshipped, what they really cared about, was not the God of the Bible. That's why, as we saw in the book of Mark, when Jesus shows up, what do they care about? National pride. Get Rome off. We want freedom. We want restoration. Not the God of the Bible. See, unlike Neb, whose pride was felled, leading to his repentance, Israel didn't repent. Even though they physically went back in the land, they were still spiritually in exile. Which means they didn't continue reading the rest of Isaiah and getting to chapter 11, verse 1 through 3, which prophesies this. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. You see, friends, like Nebuchadnezzar, God made Israel into a barren stump. But he promised one day that he would give life again. And that shoot of Jesse is clearly Jesus, who is the one at his baptism. It said that the spirit of the Lord came and rested upon him. Moreover, Isaiah 11 continues in verses 10 to 12 and says this, In that day, the root of Jesse, in that day when he gives life from the stump in the root of Jesse, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time and reclaim a surviving remnant of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, from the islands of the Mediterranean. He will raise a banner for the nations 
and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now do you see the deja vu a little clearer? How did Neb's letter begin? To all the peoples and nations of the earth. The role that Israel was meant to play was first whispered at by a pagan king who God saved. That's why this theme is picked up in Romans 9-11. through The Jews failed to repent, but the Gentiles did. So Romans 15-12, Paul says that Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 11-10. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse, the banner for the nations. And because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, he'd begun the restoration, calling to himself and saving Jews and Gentiles by being grafted into him, the true vine, the true olive tree of God's people. Which is why in Romans 10, 12 through 13, Paul would write, For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, friends, Jesus is the true tree of life. He's the true root and shoot of Jesse. He's the true olive tree into whom everyone must be grafted or else we have no part in him. This is why Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which grows into a great big tree where the birds, representing the nations, branch, rest in its branches. You see, friends, Jesus came and started growing as a shoot out of the stump of Jesse. And he's been growing his kingdom ever since. By using those like Neb and Paul and countless others to declare the hope found in Jesus Christ alone. So the message which this chapter brings us is the felling of pride. It will bring about salvation for those who repent and trust in the true stump, in the true shoot, but beastly judgment on all those who reject it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, how we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us, how it takes us back and forth, how you promised things centuries before and whispered to them in days to come. But most of all, how it all bends around Jesus, the one in whom all the promises of God find their yes and amen. And so we thank you for the hope we have in him. Would you make us a humble people who turn and trust in him alone for salvation? We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.